Welcome to the Do Good Radio Hour with Bluegrass Community Foundation. Here at Bluegrass Community Foundation, we believe doing good inspires good. It's the gift that keeps on giving. The intention behind the show is to encourage you by sharing the undeniable good happening within our community. Tune into the Do Good Radio Hour every Monday at 2 p.m. to hear about the good that is the heartbeat of our community and how you can get more involved. Welcome back, everyone. My name is Kayton, and I am part of the communications team here at BGCF. This is an extra special edition of the Do Good Radio Hour, as it is the month of February, and we are pleased to honor and celebrate Black History Month. Bluegrass Community Foundation's Board of Directors has created a charitable fund to advance racial equity and address anti-black racism. It is called the Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative. And through this initiative and their committee, BGCF has been given the opportunity to collaborate with many different leaders throughout the community of Lexington who are spearheading positive change within the black community. The Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative kicked off 2021 right with the 2021 Grassroots Black Leadership Award honorees. This award seeks to recognize individuals who are on the front lines leading the vital work of addressing racial equity, disparities in the black community, and social justice across Lexington. This award provides an unrestricted stipend of $2,500 in recognition of their efforts at the grassroots level to affect change in our community. The initiative has continued their efforts into February through a collaboration with Dr. Candace Hargons, the executive director of the Center for Healing Racial Trauma, and we will hear from her first in this episode. These free six-week online sessions will allow black community members to discuss lots of different things concerning racial identity. The Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative here at BGCF seeks to be an active part of the change. This episode highlights others who are as well, so let's welcome them and hear their inspiring stories. In honor of February and Black History Month, BGCF could not be more excited to introduce Dr. Candace Hargons, the Executive Director of the Center for Healing Racial Trauma. She is going to share with us how she is partnering with BGCF's Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative to change our community for the better through healing. Welcome, Dr. Hargons. How are you? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing pretty well today. So please tell us a little bit more about you, who you are, and what you do. Sure. So I am originally from a small town in Western New York called Lockport by way of another small town in Virginia. And then I ended up in Georgia for my last few years of high school. And I went to Spelman College and graduated from the University of Georgia with my PhD in counseling psychology in 2015. So at that point, was my first time coming to Kentucky, and I have been here ever since. I'm on faculty as an assistant professor of counseling psychology at UK, and I also am the founding director of the Center for Healing Racial Trauma, which I started in 2019. Wow. Go Kentucky. Yes. (laughs) So as you just mentioned, you're the executive director and founder of the Center for Healing Racial Trauma. Tell us a little bit more about the mission of that, the values, and how it came to be. Sure. So our mission is to help heal people with racially and ethnically marginalized identities from racial trauma through love and creativity and equity and they're, they're with through the lens of liberation. And there are um, two prongs to what we do. So we do prevention side, which is workshops and trainings and consultation with organizations who want to adopt an anti-racist mindset and an anti-racist culture. 
And we do that so that it prevents people of color from experiencing racism because they reduce the amount of racist stressors that happen. And then we do the intervention side and that's therapy services and healing work for people with racially and ethnically marginalized identities where they can process the experiences if they, they've had, um, be validated, engage in healing work to feel well in this world. As I was looking over your website before this interview, I just kept thinking you were a walking example of that famous quote that you hear all the time, be the change you want to see in the mm. world. Saw <laughs> something and you wished for it to be different and now you're offering solutions on how we can strive to be better as a community. So I really love that. Yes, because I just don't, I don't believe in complaining about something and seeing a need and not doing my part. So healing is my jam and research is my jam. And so I was like, okay, this is my small piece in the world that I can have some time, some have some focus on. BGCF's board of directors has created a charitable fund to advance racial equity and address anti-Black racism. It's called the Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative and led by you, um, the Center for Healing Racial Trauma is collaborating with this initiative to offer awesome project called the Racial Healing Circles for the community of Lexington. Mm -hmm. First, this is like a twofold question. So how did you get connected with the Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative here at BGCF? <laughs> and then you can go into explaining the Racial Healing Circles project project which yeah. we're very excited about. So I love <laughs> that the Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative reached out to me because they were seeking to determine what their initial fund would be, like where their initial funds would go that would affect change in the community. And I was really grateful when they reached out because I hadn't had a chance to connect with any of them before. And it was just a group of really thoughtful, intentional, hardworking, powerful Black people in the Lexington community who were like, hey, we're coming together to do something, again, being the change they wish to see. And we would love to start with healing. We think that's the place where we need to begin before we enact any other change. We need to start facilitating some healing. When we heard about you, we would love to partner. And so I put together a proposal and identified how I would roll out these healing circles. And we were in one accord with that. They loved it. I loved them. And they were like, let's go. And so in partnership with the Bluegrass Community Foundation, there was funding directed to that so that we could provide these healing circles to the community for free. So the healing circles really are directed. There are three of them. There's one for black men, there's one for black women, and then there's one for black families. And the goal of the healing circles is to begin the healing journey. So we recognize that they're not therapy, they're therapeutic. They're a chance for over the course of six weeks for black community members to get together and to talk about the things that they've experienced, to process some of the impacts that racism has had in their lives, but also to talk about what is wonderful, what's dope about being a black person, what do you love, how do you thrive? So not just to heal through being able to identify some of the difficult parts, but heal through the joy of it too. That's great. So will these be online through Zoom? What are the logistics of that? Sure. So the groups will be provided through Zoom. And so people who are interested will have an opportunity to go on our website and there's a form that they'll fill out and they'll say they're interested in the therapy circles, the healing circles. And our staff will reach out and schedule these 30 minute screenings to see if you're a good fit for the circle. And then once we designate the number, we have up to 20 people in each group. Once we designate that, we will have about 90 minutes per session for six weeks on Zoom. So it's accessible to people who have access to internet. 
and we'll do the healing circles for 90 minutes. So the black men's group will be run by black men, mental health professionals, and the black women's group will be run by black women, mental health professionals, and the family group will be run by black men and black women. So you have a chance to really interface with black mental health professionals in the community in a way that's introductory. So you don't have to feel like, oh, this is absolutely what I'll be doing in therapy. You just got to get a taste of it through healing and you get to be in relationship with other community members who want to talk about the same thing. That's great. Why do you think this collaboration between the two organizations is so beneficial for the community of Lexington? I always say that I love when healing work and racial justice work is done in collaboration between people who identify as allies, who want to be accomplices in the anti-racism work that we need and people in the black community who already have the internal and external resources to do the work ourselves, but we would like to do it in partnership because it happens faster. You may have heard this this saying, and I might mess it up because I'm trying to remember the details of it, but it's like, if you want to go far, um, go together. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And so I see this as a going together. I love that. You've done an amazing job. Just last question before we go, what are you most excited about with these racial healing circles? I'm excited about the community getting together and having a platform to discuss what we need moving forward, what makes us feel well, how we love on each other, heal together, and the outcomes of that. So we're going to be seeing, does it actually work? We're going to be making sure that what we do has a real evidence base. What we do is what the community asks for, as opposed to imposing some things on them that they might not want. And then if it works well, and if the community members are like, yes, we want more, we want to do some more of this, then we get to roll out a next iteration of it and make it even better the next time. So you got to start somewhere. And I'm really grateful to be starting with these organizations in Lexington at this time. Well, BGCF is ready to get this going, and I'm sure now our listeners want to know more. So shout out where they can find this, a website, a way to find out more about this. Sure. So you can find us at www.centerforhealingracialtrauma.com. And you can find more information about me at drcandicenicole.com. So sometimes people want to check out who they're going to be working with before they do. And I'm an advocate of knowing who you're going to be in community with. So you can do both. And you can also find us on Instagram at Center for Healing Racial Trauma and me on Instagram at Dr. Candice Nicole. Well, great. Dr. Hargons, thank you so much for sharing and being a light in our community. Thank you so much for having me. Please help us welcome Divine Karama, a socially conscious hip-hop artist, educator, community activist, and motivational youth speaker. Welcome, Divine. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, hanging in there. It's it's 2021, but it's kind of still feeling like 2020. I know. It's like an extension. (laughs) This year will never end, I feel like. Even if it says it ends, it doesn't. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But I'm blessed. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. That's good. So please tell us more about who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, So first and foremost, I always let people know I'm a hip hop artist. Um, That is my gift, my talent, and everything I've been blessed to do um, today. um, The foundation of that is hip hop culture. Um, Hip hop was always synonymous with community. Um, The original roots of hip hop culture was to be a voice for the voiceless. Um, so, you know, the education, um, the community activism, the community service, 
all of that derives from the foundation of what hip hop is supposed to be. So that embodies um, pretty much who I am. Um, I'm a director of a youth nonprofit, Believing in Forever Inc. Um, and then last year I started my own business, um, King Tucky LLC, um, where we specialize in, in music, artistic events, um, as well as youth programming. So um, just out here trying to, trying to live in my purpose the best way I can. That's right. I love it. Obviously, as you just said, you were involved. You have many hands in different outlets in our community. What's it like being involved in Lexington? Um, you know, it's it's gratifying, uh, you know, only because, uh, you know, when I was younger, um, whenever I would complain about something, my mom would always say, you know, complaining doesn't help anything. You know, if, you know, go be the change, go be what it is that you want to see instead of complaining about what you don't see. So, from that perspective, um, it's great, you know, um, 10 toes down, trying to be a part of the solution um, instead of just complaining about things. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it has its difficult moments. Um, you know, I'm realizing that, you know, I got into this work to make a difference, but there's even politics and, and you know, systemic things that make it challenging, even within the nonprofit world or, or just trying to make a difference. So just trying to remember my why, you know, that's what gets me through the tough times is the why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, but for the most part, um, I love it. Um, and I definitely feel, you know, fulfilled each and every day. I love that you mentioned the why, because that is pretty much the purpose of this radio show is to get people on to share their stories of the why. So it's perfect that you said that. But yeah. as you mentioned before, you are the director of the nonprofit Believing in Forever. So yes. how did this organization come to life and what is the history? So we officially got started in 2014. So we'll be turning seven in March. Um, but the vision really started, uh, you know, a little over 10 years ago, around 2010. Um, I had just moved back home from North Carolina, it's 2010, 2011. I was pursuing my music out there. And when I got back, um, several opportunities were presented to me um, to use my art to engage community. Um, somebody had asked me to do a poetry night to raise money for a inner city AAU basketball team. Somebody else asked me to do a hip hop concert or to raise money to help bury their son who um, was shot and killed a few weeks prior. And, you know, I was now 30 years old, 30, 31 years old. Um, and I just start looking at my art a little different. Um, and I made a hard pivot about 10 years ago from pursuing music to become this, you know, big rap star and win Grammys to how can I use this talent to make a difference to my community? So the vision started there. And then around 2013, I got some requests to come and speak to some kids at some of the schools. We started our annual youth coat drive. Um, and then everything just kind of took off from there. And even though hip hop is, is something I love and it's my gift, I realized that um, engaging community, um, specifically young people, is my passion. That's my purpose. So um, that's kind of how Believing in Forever started. And seven years later, we're, we're still here. You might have gone into this a little bit, but tell us more about the mission and the values of this organization. Sure. So it is Believing in Forever is designed to inspire and push young people towards leadership. But unfortunately, uh, I know when I was growing up and even in 2021, 
sometimes there's this template to what a, a leader is, right? You have to be this straight, you know, white male, um, you know, person that comes from a lot of money. And a lot of times society frames that individual as a leader. Um, but what happens to all the, the girls that are growing up, all the, the brown and black people, all the people who don't come from money, right? Um, you know, people with a different sexual orientation. What about those kids coming up? When we promote this monolith template on what a leader is, we're telling so many young people that it's not even possible for them to lead. So believing in forever intentionally um, tries to combat that narrative. We try to empower young people and let them know that, hey, we're not here to tell you how to lead, but we wanna help you figure out what your unique gifts and talents are, and then empower you to lead from there. Um, you know, I didn't come from a lot of money. Um, African-American born in Kentucky, um, don't have a college degree. Um, uh, you know, a, a lot of people could have written me off and said that I that I couldn't do some of the things that I'm doing today. But instead of listening to that, um, I just kind of used my gifts and talents and, and said, you know what, I'm a lead um, by doing what I know how to do. Um, and, and, and that's what we try to do through Believing It Forever. How have you seen this different perspective that this organization has on leadership impact our community and our youth in our community? When you get into this this mission, you know, all of my mentors tell me and even our ancestors say that you're kind of naive and even presumptuous to us to think that you will see the fruits of your labor. If, if that's what you want, um, then you should get out of this this game right now. I like that a lot. Uh, you know, and, and it's and it's true. But I must say, I have been around long enough to see some of the fruits. It's a lot of young people that you know, we're in middle school and high school um, when we engage them through Believing It Forever. And now a lot of them are in college or have moved on with their careers. And a lot of them are using poetry. Um, they're using law. They're using visual art. Um, they're using all of these different avenues to make differences in their community. Um, and, and I like to, to say that we, we played a part in empowering them to use these unique ways to engage communities. So, um, you know, I still got a long way to go, um, but we, we've definitely seen some of the fruits for sure. Everything you've just said has led up to this next thing, which is exactly why you are one of the 2021 honorees of the Grassroots Black Leadership Awards given by the Lexington Black Prosperity Initiative here at BGCF. So congratulations, first of all, but thank you. tell us what this means to you personally. It meant so much, um, not just the award, you know, not just the monetary gift, um, but even just the presentation to have all of the members on the committee call me on a conference call and um, you know, tell me why they felt I deserved it and, and to present the award in that way, it, it just, it was special. Um, it wasn't just something done for a photo op. Um, it wasn't just something done to say, hey, look what we did. Um, it felt sincere. And I just felt like I was seen. You know, a lot of times in my work, um, you know, I'm squeezed between a majority who may not um, fully respect um, the type of work that I do with a minority that is scrapping for the same resources that I am and, and might be in competition with me. Sometimes in this work, I don't feel like I'm, I'm seen. I just kind of feel like maybe an object or 
just the service to people. But this award really let me know that people appreciate the work that we do. Um, and it's such a challenging year for my family and I personally, like it just meant a lot. Um, and it really motivated me going into 2021. This award and with the gift, how do you plan to further your efforts? Yeah, so we, we poured it right back into the Lunar Library. You know, we, my daughter, unfortunately, one of my older daughters passed away last year in a car accident. She was only 18, um, Easter night. So, you know, we created the Luna Library um, to kind of continue her legacy. She was a, a big proponent of expanded African-American education. So we created a mobile library where we give away free African-American history and black character focused books to kids in the community. And, you know, a lot of that monetary gift went right back into that. Um, and then just winning the award has opened up a lot of doors. There's been a lot of people that reached out and have either wanted to volunteer, or donate um, because of the uh, recognition of that award. So, um, you know, it's only February and we're already seeing a bump um, and, it, and it just means a lot. Um, it, it was the perfect jumpstart to the new year. Everything you've said leading up to this, you've talked about being a change in the community, be the change you want to see. That can be hard work a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, so what has been the most rewarding experience for you working in activism? I would say the collaborations. I would say the collaborations. Um, when I first got into this, again, I was a hip hop artist, which is built on kind of this braggadocious, you know, um, selfish kind of attitude because you're trying to be the best MC. Um, and I kind of bought that energy into my activism. So everything was kind of about me. Um, you know, I was doing everything myself. Um, but over the years, I've realized that, you know, community service, activism, community engagement isn't about one person. You know, I can't maintain that kind of attitude and truly do the work that I, you know, that I'm called to do. So what I've appreciated, you know, being socially awkward, you know, I'm kind of to myself introverted if I'm not on stage. I've actually enjoyed pushing myself outside of my box and collaborating with more people in Lexington. I think that's helped us to help more people. Um, and it's made me realize that that is what community is about, you know, linking up with other people. So I think that's been the most rewarding part so far. One of the biggest parts I feel like of being involved in your community is making ripples or instilling what you believe into young people and also raising up leaders, as you've talked about. I love yeah. this question, but what advice would you give to young people today who also want to be a part of positive change? Kind of that ripple effect idea. Definitely. Um, to exactly what you said, you know, one of my lines I use when I go speak at schools is that, you know, your legacy isn't what you collect while you're here, but it's in what you leave behind once you're gone. Um, you know, when I go out to the grocery store or I'm in a mall, um, people never call me by my name. You know, they always say, hey, you're the you're the rapper that came to my school or you're the guy that gives away the coats or you're the guy that walked across Kentucky. And that used to kind of bother my family when they were with me, you know, because they wouldn't say me by name. But I looked at it like my work is is, is what is in their minds and hearts. You know, like our work is going to live longer than us. Like when I'm dead and gone, our work and legacy will continue. So the fact that people know me by what I do and maybe not by my name or how to pronounce it, I think it's a blessing. So I tell young people all the time, 
everything you do, especially in the social media age, everything you tweet, everything you post, everything you do is a part of your legacy. So you have to decide what you want your legacy to be. And I think if every day you wake up with that pressure of, dang, what I do today is, is you know, this is what they're going to say about me, you know, 50 years from now. I think it'll motivate you to, um, you know, do the right thing. So that'd be my biggest advice. Legacy. Don't just think about the now, you know, think about when you're dead and gone. You know, what did you leave? Absolutely. That motivated me. I got to think about my, <laughs> the rest of my day today. <laughs> so we have uh, the whole rest of the year, 2021, hopefully full of opportunity and hope. So what are you looking forward to for you and your activism and your organization and all of that? Sure. So, you know, the goal one day, my dream is to have a community center, you know, with meditation pods, state of the art recording studios, performance spaces and, and a wellness center. And that's obviously the, the end goal of my all time dream. But, you know, as we work towards that and if that's something God, you know, has in store for us, so be it. But until then, honestly, we just want to be a consistent resource. Um, each and every year, we want people to know that they can count on believing in forever for whatever it is that we provide. So many people and organizations pop up, you know, for a year or two, things don't go the way they want, and then they disband or disappear. Um, we understand that true community engagement is about relationship building and consistency. So we just always want to make sure we're here. Um, and that's just our goal moving forward. Absolutely. So before we go, shout out where people can find out more about you, about your music, about Believing in Forever, everything. Sure. So as far as my music, different events, the youth programming, people can go to kingtucky.com. Um, and, it, you know, that's where a lot of schools visit to book me to come and engage their students. If you want to check my music out, my videos, everything is there. Um, if you want to get more involved on the community side of things, you can visit believinginforever.com. And there's an option where you can donate. You can see our annual reports. You can see what we did with our money in 2020. Um, you can volunteer and you can just check out our community track record. Um, and even if you, you know, look at our mission statement, statement and we're not an organization you'd like to engage, we can help you find other organizations to volunteer within the city. So, um, just reach out to me. I'm I'm always accessible. Great. Well, Yvonne, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. You really inspired me personally. So I'm ready oh, to no go problem, out today and, and leave a legacy, as you said. So thank you very much. And we hope to speak with you again soon. Definitely. I appreciate you. Thank you. Music is the soul's own speech. Nobody knows that better than our next guest, Dr. Everett McCorvey, the founder and director of the American Spiritual Ensemble. Hello, Dr. McCorvey. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's very good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, we are anxious to hear your story. So the first question is, what led you to the creation of the American Spiritual Ensemble? Well, thank you. Uh, what led me to the creation of the American Spiritual Ensemble was uh, really started when I was uh, a child. I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, during the Civil Rights Movement. And Martin Luther King actually lived uh, a block or so, about two blocks from my house, when he was doing his work in Montgomery, Alabama. 
in the 60s. And uh, I was a child in the 60s, and my father was a, a deacon at the church where Reverend Ralph David Abernathy was the uh, minister, and Reverend Abernathy was Martin Luther King's assistant. I grew up around hearing spirituals sung in uh, in church. The music that we heard in the churches were we heard anthems, we heard hymns, we sang spirituals, and so that was the music that I grew up on. And then as I uh, went to college and then graduated from college and decided uh, to pursue a career uh, as a, a professional singer. I realized that the music of the, the, the spirituals were being lost and what was replacing it was the gospel music and gospel music is very popular and was becoming very popular and uh, really was sort of taking over the whole world of, uh, of contemporary Christian uh, music was really, you know, more gospel music in the black church. And so I wanted to make sure that these amazing stories from the spirituals were not lost. And so I started the American Spiritual Ensemble in 1995. And, uh, and so I'm happy to say that we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year and uh, and what we have been doing for the past 25 years is we've been traveling all around the world uh singing these amazing songs and telling these amazing stories just been a great honor and, and privilege to share this music well first of all congratulations on 25 years that is incredible accomplishment Thank so you. congratulations on Thank that you. And so just learning about your background and how it's rooted in such rich history is a testament to your mission. So obviously your mission is to create powerful music, but I feel like it's much more than that. Yes. So you can, can you explain it a little bit yeah. further? Sure, absolutely. Well, the mission of the American Spiritual Ensemble is to keep the American Negro spiritual alive. And I call the American Negro spirituals the mother music of America. I want you to think back, say, uh, the first slave, the first enslaved group of people stepped on American soil in 1619, a little over 400 years ago. At that point and leading forward in American history, America really didn't have a, a, a type of music that America could call its own music. America is, um, you know, we were formed by immigrants. Immigrants came from all parts of the world. And when they came, they brought their own music. Then, of course, we brought the slaves over. The slaves were uh, brought here in 1619, and they began to create their own music as a way of communication. They were not allowed to bring their music from their country. They were not allowed to bring their instruments. Uh, they had to create a whole new way of communicating with each other. Uh, they were not allowed to speak their language once they got here. They had to learn English. Uh, so they had to assimilate things that were going on into this country. One thing that they were allowed to do, however, is they were allowed to go to church because the, uh, the slave masters thought 
that if the slaves could learn about the Bible and learn about Christianity, that it would make them more docile. And so they allowed them to go to church. And so the slaves learned about the stories of the Bible, the characters in the Bible, and, uh, and realized that if God could take care of the, the least of the people in the Bible, that surely he could take care of the enslaved. And so they heard the hymns that their slave masters were singing. And they took all of that information back into their own camps and they created their own songs and they created their own stories and they created their own sort of uh, visions of hope for their lives in this country. And so they started singing their own songs. The slave masters would allow the slaves to sing as they work. If the slaves sang while they worked, they produced more work. But what the slave masters did not know is that the enslaved were actually communicating to others through song. And so these songs were not just, you know, songs with beautiful melodies, but they had a purpose. And if there was a meeting that evening, or if somebody from the Underground Railroad was coming through, to try to help slaves to break away to freedom, they would put it in a song and they would sing it. And so that way the, the slave masters thought they were just singing beautiful melodies and didn't know that these were songs of communication. There are probably over 6,000 slave melodies, spirituals, and uh, of that, about 3,000 of those have been cataloged and written down. Uh, it was the spirituals that gave America its particular sound that now people try to emulate all over the world. Uh, so American music owes a lot to the American Negro spiritual. Right. I, a long way to answer the question. <laughs> I feel like I just learned so much. And so I know our listeners do <laughs> that. So obviously beyond making music and paying tribute to the wonderful history of, of America, what are your other programs that you all do? We present concerts throughout the United States and throughout Europe. Um, the, we have a, I have a, a roster of about 125 singers. They live all over the country. They audition to be a part of the American Spirits Ensemble. We do the auditions in New York. We rehearse in New York and we rehearse here in Lexington. And then we travel um, really throughout the world. We typically travel January through March or April doing tours. And then uh, we also go to Europe in the, the summers. And then we uh, have short tours in the fall. When I'm not touring, I'm on the the faculty at the University of Kentucky, and I'm the director of the opera program at UK. And so uh, I've been at UK, this is my 29th year. We present masterclasses. Uh, we work with in communities where we'll go in for say a week and we'll work with the high schools and the elementary schools in, in that community. We'll do public concerts. Uh, we do public masterclasses uh, at different universities, uh, working with uh, students, uh, vocal students. And um, so we, we, we keep quite busy when we're on tour. 
What an asset for this to really be based in Lexington. I feel like that is such a great asset for the city of Lexington. Well, I have to thank, uh, there are so many people in Lexington that helped me to get this started. Uh, when I was thinking of starting the group, um, I called my professional friends to give them my vision of this group. And I also uh, used some of my graduate students at the University of Kentucky and, and we put the group together and, uh, and some community people from Lexington. And we were just uh, finishing our uh, tour when COVID hit in March. And uh, our last concert was at Syracuse University. And during the concert, uh, we were there for a week and we arrived on a Sunday to, 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 to do our first concert. And then we were gonna be working with the students on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, plus going to some other universities in the area. And during the concert at three o'clock, it was a three o'clock concert on Sunday afternoon. In the middle of one song, there was this huge sigh. It was like, oh, or gasp, you know? And I was like, what's going on? Did we sing something poorly or what? I didn't know what it was. And then after the concert, I found out that it had been uh, an email that had been sent to the entire Syracuse University community from the president of that university saying that the university was going to close because of COVID. And so, nice. and so, but they allowed, they were going to close that coming Friday. So our, our concert was that Sunday. So we got to do our residency. And then right as we finished our residency, the school closed, uh, as did, you know, all schools all across the country. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so obviously in this time we are living in, like you just described, the irreplaceable presence of music is even more apparent and mm -hmm. how it can connect us from afar, you know, and it's definitely a universal language. So in your opinion, what is the most important contribution the American Spiritual Ensemble gives to our community? I think what the, the spirituals give to a community is a sense of solace and a sense of belonging, comfort. Uh, if people who have attended American and American Spiritual Ensemble concert know that not only is the music powerful. What I try to do in the concerts is I try to tell the story of particular spirituals so that they're not just, uh, you know, again, beautiful melodies, but the, the spirituals are folk songs. You know, I, my definition of a spiritual is the folk song, a Negro spiritual is the folk song of the American Negro slaves. And so these songs have, you know, beautiful qualities like Swing Low Sweet Chariot and you know, there are so many uh, melodies that people have heard their entire life. And, and, and so these songs have a meaning, but then they also offer, uh, if you think about when these songs were written and why they were written and, and created, um, we don't know the, the composers of these songs because they were written 400 years ago. And so if you think about why these melodies were created, they were created during a very difficult time in our American history when people were enslaved and they were not free. These songs brought solace and comfort to uh, people uh, suffering greatly from oppression. 
Well, now, if you think about why are these songs still important and why are they still so popular, one of the reasons is that, you know, in many ways, we are still enslaved in many ways, you know. Spirituals were songs of the enslaved. They were oppressed and enslaved and not free. But just imagine people who are enslaved to drugs, people who are enslaved to alcohol, people who are enslaved to abuse. Uh, there's so many ways that people are still enslaved. And when they hear this music, which is music of hope and music of solace and music of comfort, it gives them strength to be able to, to face what they are dealing with. And so, and so these songs are, can be really attributed and attributed and, um, and, and thought about in so many different ways that uh, I think that's why they're still very popular. Yes, and the power of music is so irreplaceable, and that is even more apparent now than ever. Yes, I'm happy to say that we are the only professional group dedicated to preserving the American Negro spiritual uh, in the country. And of course, it's That's amazing. It, this it's amazing, and 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 this is music that can only be, uh, you know, no other country can lay claim to this music because this is a music that was created here during during a difficult time in American history. I love to ask this next question to end the segment because I feel like there's always more to an organization that can be told through a firsthand experience. So is there anything you wish more people knew about your organization? I think the thing that I, that I wish more people knew is uh, the impact of the lives that it touches, um, the music touches. I think that there's so many parts of American music that we don't even realize that came from uh, the American Negro spirituals. And so the impact that spirituals have had on music all over the world is something that a lot of people probably don't know. And, uh, and so I'm just delighted to be able to champion this music and to keep this music alive, not only in our community, but in our country and in our world. I learned that during this interview, so I know other people will as well. So. <laughs> Last question before we go, I'm so sad this is over because I want to learn some more. Shout out mm -hmm. where people can learn more about you and how they can get involved. Your website, social sure. media. Yeah. So uh, our website is www.americanspiritualensemble.com. And so American Spiritual Ensemble, all is one word, uh, americanspiritualensemble.com. Okay, great. Well, Dr. McCorvey, thank you for doing good in our community and for taking the time to share your story here on the Do Good Radio Hour. We appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. That is it. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you were encouraged by the stories of good happening right here in our community. I definitely know that I am. Make sure you tune in next Monday at 2 p.m. for more good stories and the next installment of the Do Good Radio Hour.